lot of different Jewish thought. And um, I guess my real claim to fame is I'm a friend of mine. <laughs> um, but I thought maybe we would learn together tonight is where the whole concept of clothing began from in the Torah. And <coughs> what I've done is, just because I've been teaching in many different circles for over many different years, I kind of compiled a list of different questions that people will often ask about Jewish dress, particularly about Jewish women's dress, because that is one of the um, most outstandingly noticeable points. Um, I remember when I was chaperoning one of my high school classes, and we went to Great Adventure in the summer, and all my girls were wearing the longer skirts with the longer sleeves, and we would have people, you know, come over to us at the amusement park and say, can I just ask you, like, is this like a uniform? Why are you all dressed in these, like, you know, long... So, whether we're answering questions that are presented <coughs> to us by somebody, let's say, out in an office to understand what we do, what we do, and to understand it for our own selves, I thought we could dig tonight into some of the deeper roots of clothing in the Torah itself. So, first let's start with a question, because I think before you ever learn a topic in, in any area, it's important to know what are the questions that bother us about that topic. So here's a list that I compiled for my girls, and we can put in or add anything <coughs> you would like to make sure you would be addressed or put into. It seems as if Judaism says you've got to take the prettiest parts of your body and make sure that you cover them up because you don't want anybody to look at them and find them too attractive. If you look at any of the ads out there, even in Jewish newspapers, everything is about looking beautiful, right? You want to wear the right kind of makeup, you want to wear the right kind of clothing, you want to wear, you know, look put together. So question number one, I like to feel attractive when I go out. What is the whole purpose of covering up? What is that about? <coughs> and are we saying, number two, am I supposed to be ashamed of my body? Does Judaism see the body as something like bad and negative, and therefore like covered up because you don't want people to look at it? And sometimes you hear, you know, like, let somebody, a three-year-old comes out of the shower, and uh, the mom will say to them, like, oh, cover up, like, you know, you're not really dressed properly, or you're not so modest. What does <coughs> three-year-old hear? Are they thinking, like, oh, my goodness, my body is something shameful and bad that nobody's supposed to look at? Is that the message or not? That's question number two. Am I supposed to be ashamed of my body? So my own understanding of modesty always was growing up, and I grew up in a, in a, in a religiously observant home, so I always thought it was about, you really want to make sure when you go outside that men don't look at you and then have the wrong kind of thought, like too lewd thoughts. Then I remember thinking, so really the issue is a man's issue. They shouldn't be thinking or feeling things that are inappropriate. Why do we have any responsibility of dress for them? It's really about them, not about us. Question number three. 
if modesty is essentially meant to deal with men's thoughts, what do I have to dress for them? Let them, you know, not think or not look at whatever they shouldn't. And I don't have to necessarily dress to accommodate that. And then the last part, I don't know if we'll get to today or not, the details of the laws of modesty seem very demanding or very technical. Um, you see that you know women are always going with their their chest covered, with their skirts longer, with their arms covered. Where do those details come from, and why? Why? What is the basis for those altogether? Those are the the, the four main questions that I always put. The floor is open. If anybody has any other questions, you'd like to try to make sure we address tonight. Why? You'll have to tell me your name one more time. Julia. Great. Why is it still relevant? You're saying why is covering our body so relevant? Let's say if it is supposed to be about cover, like men's thoughts or whatever, if people are so desensitized. Why is it still relevant, and why is it still by the standards that was were set hundreds of years ago? Like, I hear you. Meaning, like nowadays, things that might have been seen as very promiscuous right. previously, maybe nowadays nobody would bat an eyelash. I know. Okay, so that's going to fit into question number four, those details about the laws and where are they really really coming from. I hope we'll get to that tonight. Great. Anything else you'd like to share with Great. Yes? I mean, sometimes I feel like women dress quote-unquote modestly and they're all covered, but at the same time it's very it's form-fitting outfit and it's still very sexy. That's a very good point. And I think it is possible for a person to keep the technical laws of modesty, but if they don't really understand where the concept is coming from, it's the outfit or the clothing doesn't necessarily match the message of what the laws are about. Very important point. Great, great. Yeah. Also, just trying to figure out, I mean, I like colors a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I've heard like different things about people have to, I like, I'm Russian, like I can't live without cheetah print. Like, yeah. I have <laughs> my wardrobe, like things that evidently, if I'm like hanging out in Maya Sharon or Williamsburg, like will get me stoked. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, is, is it really supposed to be that you're not supposed to have attention or is it supposed to be, isn't it supposed to be about attention being put on the right things and attention, even if you have attention, I don't think attention's bad as long as you're bringing attention in a good way. I just don't see why a color or something like that, or having attention in and of itself is bad. Great. So number five that we can add, is there something specifically wrong with colors? And is the concept of modesty about attention? Or or what? Or what? Good. 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 So I'd like to actually start our whole modesty discussion from the opposite end of what we normally think. And I know it's late at night, we've all had long days. Tonight's class is going to be a little bit like philosophical, meaning to think through with me. So stop me at any point, and if you're losing me, just do. Okay. Um, I would like to present the opposite premise of what we normally assume. We assume that, of course, when you get up, you have to get dressed in the morning, but who says it has to be modest? Maybe the truth is, if everybody would just be really comfortable with their body and who they were, then maybe we really wouldn't need the whole concept clothing altogether. And the only reason we need clothing is because we live in a social norm where that's considered the normative. But back in the 1960s, during the hippie movement, they would start nudist colonies. 
And their idea was that is it. Maybe you can break down the assumption of clothing being necessary, and everybody can just be comfortable with who they are. Now, if you think my idea is totally sacrilegious, the truth is you find it inside the Torah. Where? Adam and Eve before they Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they eat <coughs> from the tree. Let's take a look together, right under the dotted line. We're number one. Do you want to read it? They were both? Um, I can't read without vowels. You can read it in English. Okay. <laughs> they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So there they are, walking around the garden eating no clothing, and not feeling any sense of shame or discomfort. Now, if God created the world this way, it sounds like that's the ideal. Like, we should all be striving to be like that, right? When does that change? As soon as they eat from that tree. Now, I should just tell you, because I know everybody assumes it's an apple, but, uh, no, you should know, it's funny, because, but, you know, in our sources, there's a discussion as to whether it might have been an etrog, it might have been a fig, it might have been grapes, it might have been wheat. So just so you know, for all the comics that presented as an apple, it's something other than an apple, we're not exactly sure which. But as soon as Adam and Eve eat from that tree, that whole reality changes. Do you want to read number two? And the woman? And the woman perceived that the tree was good for eating, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was desirable as a means to wisdom. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they sewed together a fig leaf and made themselves so what's interesting here is the very last verse before they eat from the tree was the one that we read right on top. That Adam and Eve were walking around the Garden of Eden, no clothing, feeling totally fine, no sense of shame. The very first verse, as soon as they both eat from that fruit, whatever it was, all of a sudden their eyes open, they feel undressed, unclothed, and it's not like they get a commandment from God like, now you must be modest, wear clothing. They intuitively feel the need for clothing, and they feel clothing for themselves. So obviously, something very drastic must have happened during those moments of eating from that tree that suddenly changes Adam and Eve's perception of their bodies, of themselves, and of the world, and suddenly creates this need for clothing that wasn't there before. If we can understand where the need for clothing started from, then we can really understand some of the basis of modesty. Because modesty is a question of, how much clothing do you choose to wear? <coughs> so the goal of the rest of the class tonight is to understand what happened during the eating of that tree that changes the need and creates a need for clothing that wasn't there before. So what we're going to start with is, let's go back to Adam and Eve before they eat from the tree. Very beginning of time. We're going to read a verse that will describe the creation of Adam. As we read it, Please try to notice how many different ingredients there are in this creation. And again, we're trying to define how we worked before the sin at the very beginning of time. We're going to number three at the bottom. Marcy, do you want to? Sure. And Hashem formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. Okay. How many different ingredients are there here? Two. Two. What are they? Great. So first there's dust. That's the formation of the physical body of man. Good. 
Then the second one you said was a soul, which is the spiritual part of man. What is that being made out of? The breath. Great. Breath of God. He's breathing in the soul of life. Is man alive before he gets the soul? I mean, if he was, then that would have been the end of the story of creation. I mean, like, this is the story of creation, just like how there's numerous steps to setting someone up. Like, it wouldn't have been done. Okay. Can you prove from the words in the, in the verse itself? Was he alive yet or not? Marcy, no. How do you know it? <clears throat> because he said he became a living being after. Great. He only becomes a living being after he gets the soul. So in the beginning, God is just kind of taking mud, clay, dust, shaping a puppet-like physical figure, but he's not alive. Then God does like CPR. He's blowing from his own inner breath, as this is not physical, obviously, into the nose of man, which is like the way you revive a person, and that becomes that peace of God, that breath of God becomes the spiritual soul within him. And because of this, all of us come from Adam, and we each have these two sides of self, right? Like when you first meet me, you see my body, that's my outer side, but the, my inner real self and my essence is not just my body, but my inner personality, my thoughts, my, <coughs> my spiritual side, which is my soul. Good. So we each have two sides, physical body and spiritual soul. Now let's make sure we're just clear on definitions. How would you define something as being a physical thing as opposed to being a spiritual thing? I think you would say, like, this chair is physical, right? What makes something physical as opposed to spiritual? You can see it. Great. Physical things you can see. Any other definitions? Devoid of meaning. Devoid. Physical things are devoid of meaning. Um, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. You don't like that? Like, you see. Um, is a safer Torah considered physical? No, that is meaning. So is it only spiritual? It has no physical reality? No, but I don't think they have to be separate. So, can there be a physical thing that still has spiritual meaning? Yeah. Okay, so not all physical things can be defined as having no, no meaning, or no spiritual meaning. Wait. No, I just think that's how you describe spiritual, not how to describe physical. Physical is harder to explain what physical is. Okay, so we, we want to try to come up with, with a definition that will define something as being physical as opposed to spiritual. Like, how would you define what the difference is between them? So we have one very good definition from Rebecca. I can see it or touch it right with the senses. Good, great. I'm going to just continue doing double bed because you'll let enjoy this. Is air considered something physical? Um, scientifically, yes. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can see it now? Yeah. You're saying when it's moving. If it's blowing and it's moving, then you can feel it. But it's in a static state. You can't feel air. You can't see air. Right? Um, when I turn on my microwave at home, I will often ask my kids, like, please do not stand right in front of the microwave. I do not see any radiation waves coming out. I do not feel any radiation waves coming out. I really believe absolutely <coughs> they exist, that they exist. So not all physical things are only things that you can see or touch. So we have to go back to the drawing board. How do you define something as being something physical as opposed to spiritual? Because not all physical things are visible or are tangible, necessarily. Something where it's capable of calculating what's hard. 
can be f that are physical too. I don't know why they have to be a tangible thing. I'm saying that you can be like the, like, the, the terms of like but like gashmias being this, like the physical and rachmias being the spiritual element. There's a lot of thoughts or a lot of like ideas that are physical in nature yet not tangible. I mean like any animalistic ideas I think are very physical and it, it, that could just be a for example, you can be hungry, which is more physical, but that's not, you don't physically see the lack of food in you, but like, it's a physical desire. What we're saying is, physical things are not always visible. Right. So how do you define something as being physical? Something that you can prove exists. Something that you can prove exists. You can't prove that you're hungry. Yeah, but you can scientifically prove what happens to the stomach when the stomach is hungry and why you feel something. Like you can Comes to my theater table. He also goes to people in England, 
South America, Australia. Now, when I was a kid, I used to think, like, come on, there is no way you can travel to all these locations in one evening. It just can't be. But I was imagining Eliyahu as being this, like, physical being moving from place to place. Eliyahu and Havi is like a spiritual entity. He can fill multiple spaces simultaneously because there's no finite place in which he has to be located. Hashem, God himself, is omnipresent. That means he fills all places all at once because there's no end and beginning point to where he is. No limits. Okay? Good. So that's one definition of physical. Physical is limited by space. Spiritual things are not limited by space. Rebecca pointed out a second point, which is physical things are also limited <coughs> by time. time. Great. That means all physical things have a starting point and have an ending point. Take a flower. It starts to blossom at a certain point in time. April, May, it did not exist before that time. Three months later, it decays and it ends and it dies. My car, it's a physical thing. It was built at a certain point in time. It did not exist before that time it was built. Ten years later, eleven years later, last year we had the funeral for hours. It's gone. <laughs> but like, it ends and it stops working. And, and right, my body was born at a certain point in time. It didn't exist before that time. The person should live 80, 90, 100 years, but everybody's body eventually ends and decays. Things that are spiritual are things that have no time limit to them. This is called infinite, infinite, right? No finite limitation, beginning and end to where they are. Good? So this is why the name that we actually give to Hashem, to God in Hebrew, we usually write Yud, Hey. I'm not, you're not allowed to write out his name, so I'm not going to write it in full, but it's a Yud and a Hey, then a Vav, and then a Hey. I wrote them as a Kuf, because I just don't want to write his real name. But does anybody know, if you, if you look in any Siddur or, or in the Torah, that's how his name is always written out, right? Where does that name come from? Yud and He and Vav and He? Isn't it like Hayah, Hayah, Hayud? So like, was, will, was, is, and will always be, Perfect. like God transcends time. Beautiful. Hayah, Hayah, Hoveh, Hoveh, and Yihyeh, which means he always was, he is, and he always will be. And exactly as you said, that means the best label or definition that we could give of God is infinite, infinity, eternity. There is no beginning point and there is no ending point. Great. Now, being that our soul comes from the breath of Hashem, of God, that means that it's coming from a source of infinity. This is why the Jewish definition of death has to be the split between my body and my soul. Because my body is a physical thing that's finite, that's limited by time and has a beginning point and ending point, it has to end. Because my spiritual soul is coming from a source of eternity, that piece of me doesn't end when my body has to end, it just exits from that case called my body. This is really not our topic, but I, I, I just can't help sharing it with you because I think it's so fascinating. I always learned growing up that this name Yudhe comes from Hayahoveh and Yeh. But how many people here read Hebrew? Oh, great. Okay. Um, how does Haya, Hoveh, and Yiyeh turn into Yud and then He and then Vav and then He? What do you mean? Well, you have to have the Yiyeh The Yud. So you're saying this Yud from Yiyeh is right there? Yeah. Okay. Where's this He coming from? 
this hip went here. Or the hip. Hold that. Or well, it could be from here. Right. Think. And the bob is like end. The bob is from where? Like end. Like a connection. Oh, so we just put in an end. Well, just end. Okay. Well, why not hold that and use the hey bob? Right. Right. Are we just like arbitrarily kind of choosing <laughs> letters? Right? I, I never knew this for years, and then after I got married, my husband showed this to me, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. He said, take these three words, Hayahoveh and Yiyeh, and try writing each one transposed on top of the other one. So first you write, Hayah, Hey Yud, Hey. We're going to write on top of it, Hoveh. So this Hey will get swallowed into this Hey right here. This Vav will go onto the Yud, and now it will turn it into a Vav. This final hay will go into this hay right here. So now we have a hay above and a hay. Okay. Now take yiye, you will be, and put it on top over here. This yud will go right out here. I'm not writing it because I don't want to write out Hashem's full name. This hay will go into this hay right here. This yud will get swallowed into this vav right there. And this final hay will go into this final hay here. So basically you'll have a yud out here, and then a hay, and then a vav, and then a hay. So really, God's name, the way we call him, is past, present, and future, all consolidated at once. Mm -hmm. Because in real reality, time doesn't exist. Hayakovet and Yiyeh is all happening simultaneously. <coughs> now, we're not allowed to even like, pronounce that name. We're not allowed to say it because it's so beyond our perception of reality. We can't define anything in that, in that level. We can write it, but we just pronounce it as Adon, which is dynastic. Good. Okay. So we have two definitions now. Please don't think we've lost our train of thought. We're still getting back to modesty and clothing and how it began. But what we've done so far is we spoke about now what was Adam like at the beginning of time before the sin. He had two parts of self, physical body, spiritual soul. Physical body is limited by space and limited by time. Spiritual soul is beyond time limit and beyond space limit. Any questions for this? Great. Okay. Anybody remember from the beginning of the Torah? How long was the first man, Adam, supposed to live? Forever. Forever, right? The, the punishment for the sin is that he now has to die. That should raise philosophical questions based on everything we've just spoken about. That he was given a physical body from the dust. If you say Adam is like a spiritual being, he's all soul, and you tell me he's going to be eternal, that makes sense. He, had, he was a soul. But we just said he was created from two parts, physical body and spiritual soul. How is that physical body supposed to really live eternally if it's made out of dust, which is matter and physical stuff? It meant something different. Mm, so maybe even physical meant something different than it means now. The only question is, before the sin, was, were plants and animals also going to live forever? So it would be a good, a good assumption, but if you look in the Torah, you only see that after he does the sin, God says, now you will die. He doesn't say, now animals will die, now plants will die. The only change that happens is within Adam himself. It seems that the physical world was limited by time, even before the sin. Only Adam, with his body, was somehow supposed to live forever. Did they get a breath of God out of the animals? They did. So, Wait, the animals did not. Yeah, the animals did not. So then, they, then it makes sense that they would, they would have died. 
the animal. Right. So it makes sense that all the physical animals and all other physical realities should die because it's physical. Right. Now, if you tell me maybe <coughs> it meant that man's soul would have lived forever, could that have been it? That's what John said. But it does now. It still does, even after the sin. So then there would have been no change from before and after. So it must have meant that before the sin, Adam's body would have lived forever. And the question is, how would his body have lived forever if all physical things really were lived at that time? No one ever brings this up. I don't understand. Well, <laughs> <laughs> his soul have gone into a different body? Ooh. Interesting. Interesting. No mention of it in the Torah itself that that would have happened. I think if there was no such thing as feeling naked, no, and then there is. There's something different in whatever is physical from the before. Right. Yeah. There must be a difference in the relationship to the physical if beforehand body felt naked and afterwards not. To be able to see that difference, we have to see why the body could have lived forever and why afterwards it doesn't live forever. Then we'll get the, the hint on the clothing too. Okay? So here's what the commentaries explain. In the original plan, what God said is, if Adam takes a soul and ma makes it work in total teamwork with his physical body, what can happen is that the body can be so injected and infused by the energy of the spiritual soul that it will become spiritual in nature also. It will then break beyond the limits of time, and with the soul, it will be able to live forever. So if you flip your page over to the other side, you'll see like a very amateur diagram of this. There's plan A before the sin. There's man's physical body. There's his neshama, his soul on top. The neshama is like overtaking, infusing, injecting itself into the body cells, elevating them, making them spiritual, and then they become eternal. Now, what does this mean? God is saying to Adam, even though your hands are made of like matter, which is just dust, and it should decay and end and die, if you let your hand cells be maneuvered and navigated and directed by your spiritual side of self, that means you use your hands to write notes to understand godliness and Torah and Hashem with greater clarity. You use your hands to cook for Shabbat. You use your hands to give charity and give tzedakah money. You are taking those physical hands and you are letting them be infused with such spiritual energy, they can absorb that spiritual energy, they will become spiritual, and then your hands <coughs> and every part of your body can become uplifted to be eternal. That was plenty. What happens when Adam did, does the sin? So that's the middle of the page, post-sin. What the rabbis say is that he actually created within himself a wall a blockage between his physical and his spiritual parts of self. They were both living in the same container, but they're not infused together anymore in total harmony. Let's think logically. Why do you think this act should cause a split between physical and spiritual? Think about what he's actually doing in the thing. Doing something against the spiritual desire. And what was the actual act? Eating. He's, he's ingesting, he's eating a physical fruit, right? Mm -hmm. Now, is this physical act of eating going to be like in harmony with spiritual growth and connection to God? 
Hashem told him right in advance, if you do this, you are creating a total disconnect. So what he was really showing is, for the first time in history, I can do physical things with my body that taste good, that feel good, that look good, even if it's not necessarily in teamwork with spiritual growth and spiritual development. Look back again one more time to side one. Look again to number two, which are the verses that describe why Eve decides that she's going to eat from that tree. What seem to be her main motivating factors according to the verses? It was a means to wisdom. That was the third, the third motivation. Yes? That sounds spiritual, right? And like wisdom sounds like a spiritually elevated thing. What does it say before that? The delight to the eyes. Delight to the eyes. Good. What was even before that? Good for eating. So out of two out of three of her motivations were good for eating, delightful to the eyes, and the third sounds more spiritual intellectual development, right? Now I want you to realize I'm totally oversimplifying this thing. This wasn't just like, wow, there's a McDonald's cheeseburger, let's go for it, it looks yummy, right? There were definitely deeper spiritual reasons why they even felt that this was an important thing to invest and do. But on a very simple level, what the what the verses in the Torah are, are leading us to is telling us, you know what she was doing? She was letting her physical body kind of lead, guide to what looked good, to what was tasting good. And in this case, she wasn't living in spiritual combination with her soul. Once they build that wall between physical body and spiritual soul, what becomes the result of that? So go back again to the other side again. In the middle of the page, you can see the diagram of plan B. There is the spiritual on the right, physical on the left, wall in the middle. There's a blockage between them. So what is the punishment or consequence for that right at the bottom where it says to Adam, Julia, do you want to read? Uh-huh. Um, in English? Yeah. Um, to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the tree which I, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. So now God says, now the consequence will be that now your body will have to end and die. This isn't God punishing them like, I'm so angry at you. You, you didn't listen to me, and I told you to listen, and now therefore I'm causing you death. God is saying, this is the natural result and consequence of what you have just done to yourself. Till now, the body had the potential to be totally elevated by the spiritual part of self. Now, your body's made of dust. It's physical matter. Physical matter is limited by time and space. Being that it can't be totally invested and infused by the soul energy, it will have to end like all physical things do end. Now, in that verse that describes that consequence, does it say anything about what will happen to the soul? Nope. All it says is, for you are dust, and to dust shall you return. The part of you that is made out of dust will now have to go back to dust. The soul will go back to its source, which is the breath of God. Now, this is a separate class in its own right, but just to realize what the, the gift that God created within the system was, that God says, though, your body will not be totally out of the picture. It will have to end and die. It will go through a deterioration and a decaying process under the earth. That decaying process will actually break down this barrier that you created. And then in the future, there will be something called the resurrection of the dead, 
where your body will come back, be rebuilt without this blockage, the soul will come back in, the soul will be able to elevate the body, and then there will be the future reward with the body and soul together, which will happen after the end of this year. But that's a separate, a separate direction and a separate thing. So what happens now after the synod, just remind me Helena, what time we started? So what happens now is that every human coming from Adam is born in this state of post sin, which means we all have kind of this dual reality of soul and body, and not always do the twain meet and want exactly the same things out of life, right? Um, many of the moral struggles and ethical choices that people have to make will often come down to kind of the direction the soul wants and the direction the body wants. Let's give one or two just practical examples. Um, somebody owns a business. They find out that if they don't report all of their cash flow income, they can save a few hundred dollars on their tax return. What might the body say about that choice? Great. What does it have to do with body? Because it's finite. Because it's just this year's tax return. Good, but why would the body care so much to, to, to be dishonest on tax returns? What does that have to do with the body? If I have more money, my body gets a lot more pleasure, right? I can more Come on. Uh, very spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> this is the right here, right? But, you know, I can get nicer clothing, nicer food, better food, nicer house. My body will enjoy so many experiences, right? Better. Jewish schools for my kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. So the body might just say, well, like, yeah, let's save a little money and we'll get better stuff. There's then there may be like this inner voice that kind of says, do you want to really be a dishonest human being to be able to have all that extra stuff? And is it worth that trade-off? And then the, the debate kind of becomes like, little me, I'm stuck in the middle, I'm a puppet, and there are two voices going on inside myself. One kind of says like, just get it. And the other kind of, side, kind of says, oh, but you really want to be an honest person. And then the question is like, which direction am I going in? And whichever way I decide, that kind of, strengthen my identity as that part of myself, either the soul part or the physical part. Um, example number two, um, a girl has to decide, do I want to be in a physical relationship with this guy tonight without being married to him? Right? So the body might say, you know what, it's going to feel pleasurable, we'll enjoy the connection, why not, go for it. There may be an inner voice that says, do I really want to have a physical relationship with somebody where there isn't yet trust and commitment and loyalty, and he can be with me now, but two weeks later he can be with somebody else? Like, is that really the type of connection and bond that I'm looking for? So then the debate becomes kind of like, which my body wants, which my soul wants, and like, which one am I at this moment, right? You can elevate this to more religious or, you know, Jewish choices, like, you know, you wake up Shabbat morning, and you look at your watch and it's like 9 a.m. And you're thinking, hmm, if I get out of bed right now, I still can make it to shul, to synagogue, and do some things, right? Like, my body might just say, you know what, you've been going to bed 1 a.m. every night this week, you're tired, forget about it, right? There may be an inner voice that says, my Shabbat is different when I do have time when I spend shul, I really want to get that experience in. And then 
the question comes like, which am I at this moment, body or soul? Because this is like a universal struggle that all humans deal with, there have been, basically been three world philosophies that have, exist, that have developed over this struggle between body and soul. One is that of Christianity. What is this? What are you looking at? How do you deal, after the sin of Adam, since they're not going in harmony anymore together, they're going in different directions, how do you deal with this like struggle between these two sides of self? And this is not a Jewish struggle, right? Like, this is Adam, first man. All humans have this struggle. So, like, what do you do about this problem when your body's pulling in one way and it's so the other? Well, I have a question, because in all of the examples you gave, it seems like the soul is the correct one. Like, um, the example of the businessman, like, no, it's unethical to not write your tax returns, like, no, you probably shouldn't be sleeping around, like, the, uh, like, the thing that came to my mind was, like, like, I stopped eating shellfish, like, a couple of years ago, and, like, I'm the only one in my family that does, so, like, I'll be at dinner, and, like, ever, like, some people will be at the island house, some people will be eating lobsters, and, like, it doesn't faze me anymore, but, like, it's, like, do you indulge in the physical pleasure? Or do you like almost like take the higher road and go the spiritual? And I feel like the spiritual is always the higher road. So like if it's if it's like a competition, isn't the spiritual always going to win? This is a great question. That's so well targeted and well well defined. I think what I'm about to get to okay. right now might might address it, but if it doesn't, come right back to me. Okay. Um, what is Christianity? You don't really have to know Christian theology, and that's not really, our center is not about the life. <laughs> um, does anyone know, like, what does Christian thought say about spiritual versus physical? Yes? Physical is bad. You shouldn't do it. And nuns and priests and exactly. That's called, right, asceticism. They would say... If you're a puppet over here, and your body and your soul are pulling in two opposite directions, and you're stuck in this like tug of war in two different directions, you've got to quiet one side of the tug of war to develop the other side. So the choice is either be like a spiritual soul, or be like animalistic body. The only way you can become more spiritual is by refraining from and denying the body as much as possible. So in Christianity, a nun is not allowed to get married at all, because male-female relationship is physical contact, and that will take you away from spiritual depth of connection. Um, monks in a monastery will have very limited, eat dry bread, have just water, a lot of fasting, limited speech, because the idea is the more you indulge in physical experience, the more it will pull you away from spiritual. Good. Then you have Western society. What does the Western world say about physical and spiritual? Go for it. Which side do you mean? Go for it. The the Western world overall kind of says like, oh, forget about all that spiritual stuff, right? Just have the right physical experiences. And if you do that, you will be happy in life. Unfortunately, we don't find that the rate of like, you know, depressants and people who are, whose joy is overflowing in society overall is necessarily at its peak and at its height. Because if you're only addressing one part of yourself and not really addressing the other, there's always a part that still feels kind of void and empty. I just remember when I first got married, we lived in LA for two years. 
And there was an ad that they had on the side of a whole building that I would pass on my way to work. And every time I would pass it, I always said to myself, I am not accepting this mentality of life. They were selling a car. They had the car in back. Beautiful woman in front, not dressed extremely modestly. <laughs> Arms up in the air. And the line in the ad said, I'm firing my therapist. <laughs> the weirdest ad. It was really weird. But what was the message of the ad? Your car will make you happy. As long as you have the right kind of car, you don't have to deal with like your inner issues that are going on, your relationship issues, right? Just now, now, it sounds ridiculous when you think of it logically, but this wouldn't sell if there wouldn't be some truth to it. So it is true that like the first time when you get the new car and you're busy with like those leather seats and the good electronics and the air conditioning, right? It's so much fun that you really can forget about a lot of the issues that are going on. The problem is that because physical things are limited by time, that lasts for like the first two months and maybe the first four months. But by after seven or eight months when the new model has come out and there's so many better, right? So then you, it like gets a little bit boring. So then the advertising world has to tell us there's something else out there that you haven't tried yet that will make you happy. Lancome eyeshadow, the orchid color. <laughs> you just haven't tried that yet. Like if you put that on, you'll feel really good, right? Now you go and you put buy it and you put it in the mirror and like you know it's just like frames my eye and the color goes so well. And the first time I wear it, like it really feels great. And the second time and the third time. But like after you've been wearing that color for another three months, that gets a little bit boring also. And then you end up on this like never-ending cycle of like try this, try that, but then by the time you're 40, it's kind of like been there, done that, what else is there out there? So if you're in the Western world of only hedonism, that doesn't really become too fully satisfying or completely either. Judaism does not ascribe to either one of these two systems. <coughs> Judaism says, if we're created with two sides of self, we're not meant to be denying either one, but we're meant to be trying to use and integrate both sides of self towards one higher goal. So Judaism says on the most spiritual day of the week, Shabbat, we're not about eating dry bread and drinking just water. Make yourself an amazing meal, like have chocolate chip walnut muffins and have your sushi and have your, you know, whatever things are really, but the experience of that meal cannot just be about the menu and what you're ingesting. There have to be things going on at that meal, whether it's words of Torah that give you greater depth of insight, whether it's songs of inspiration, mirrors that really touch your inner side of self, whether it's relationship time that's happening with your family and close friends. And then there's an integration between the physical meal and the spiritual experience. Are there things that can be physically um, contaminating or conflicting with the spiritual? Yes. If I bring into that meal pygmy, or sh then that would take away that spiritual nature of the world because there's something in the chemistry of that, that physical stuff that can't be integrated. Yes. So it sounds like another word for integration is like a balance between the two. Mm -hmm. So like you're going to laugh at my example, but my mom always says like you have to listen to your body. Like So like they're more, like I try and set my alarm for 6 a.m. every morning to go to the gym. And like four times a week, it's good. And then there's that like one day of the week where I set my alarm for six o'clock and like my body just won't move. And like the times where like I make my body go to the gym, I don't even have a good workout anyway because like mentally I'm not there. So like, isn't it like, so like, isn't it in, in some 
such an important point. Meaning, Judaism doesn't say, like, don't take care of the body because the main thing is the soul. Judaism says you can turn the care of your body into a spiritual experience if, as you're doing it, you're just thinking to yourself, when I finish my exercising, I'm going to come out with so much positive energy that I'm going to be able to be pleasant and positive with other people around me, spread good cheer, have positive energy to accomplish important things. So in that case, the taking care of my body becomes and transforms into a mitzvah. And the, the mashal, the allegory that's often given for this is, in Hebrew, anybody know how you say a donkey? Good, chamor. Anybody know how you say physical matter or material in Hebrew? Gashmiot or chomer. Same root letters, chetmemresh, chetmemresh. Right? Donkey and physical matter. So if you think about a donkey and you ask yourself, how meaningful is the life of a donkey in world history? Right? He eats and he drinks and he sleeps and he mates and he excretes and goes to sleep. And then he wakes up the next morning and he eats and he drinks and he sleeps and he, right? and he does that for, I don't know, 10 years, I don't know what the lifespan is, 15 years, whatever it is. So you say, how much, how meaningful is his life? He's living on a physical level and he's dying. But let's say there would be a writer who would be able to ride on this donkey and use it for an unbelievable mission that changes world history. Let's say somebody actually came up with a real peace treaty, this will not happen, that will make peace in the Middle East between Israel, Jordan, and Syria. So much, yes, I don't believe it. But let's just say. And we would need to bring this peace treaty from Washington to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Damascus, from Damascus to Cairo, right? And this donkey would be used by the rider to bring it from place to place. And now you ask, how meaningful is the life of this donkey in world history? Amazing. He has changed the world. Now, he's still eating and drinking and sleeping and eating and drinking and sleeping, but there's a writer who's directing and manipulating and guiding it for a spiritual for, for purpose. The real question in life is we all have our own donkey, right? I need to exercise my donkey, drink it, eat it, sleep it, take good care of it. The question is, am I riding my donkey or is my donkey riding me? Is it, am I just going in whichever direction the impulses are pulling me, or am I using my donkey and, and guiding it and taking care of it for a higher level? And the last example, I guess, I would give of this, as we spoke about nuns and not marrying in Judaism, we don't say, don't get married, male-female contact is a physical experience. What we say is, make sure that at the time that you're going out with somebody, you're going out in a way where your dress and your presentation and your physical contact is limited to make sure that the starting point of the relationship is really coming from that spiritual internal place of mutual respect, of building together. Once you know that you both really value each other and who you are, then we don't say no physical. We say get married, write that treaty of commitment and, and of, of, of loyalty, and once that's there, then the physical is the most, the most spiritual experience that can be. Great. So, to, 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 sum our, to, to wind ourselves up, I think we can now just imagine a tiny bit the difference between how Adam and Eve must have looked at the physical world before the sin and after the sin. We said before they did the sin, anytime they looked at anything physical, they always saw it in harmony, in teamwork with its spiritual essence. 
So when I look like at a chocolate chip muffin, the first things I think about are its physical experience, right? Like, mmm, chocolate chip is my favorite flavor. And I love those like crunch nuts inside. What was that? I have no idea. What's going on? Um, I love those crunchy nuts that taste so good. Now afterwards, I can say to myself, you know what? You really better be kosher. And before I put it in my mouth, I really should say a blessing and thank God for eating it, right? So I've added spiritual meaning into that physical experience. Before the sin, when he would look at a chocolate chip muffin, Adam always saw it in total harmony with what the spiritual essence was. So that means he could look at that muffin and think, oh well, this is Hashem's expression of love and care and nurture for me as a person. He didn't just give me dry bread. He wanted me to have crunchy nuts and melting chocolate in my mouth. He's really taking such care of me. I'm going to save this chocolate chip muffin for my Shabbat meal to enhance and help me appreciate Hashem's love for me as a person. So beforehand, whenever he would see something physical, he always saw it for its spiritual meaning. When I look at a marker, the first thing I think about is its physical characteristics. Oh, nice color, greenish blue. I like it. It's like, you know, not so boring. And um, low odor. I'm just so glad I don't like that heavy smell of markers, right? Now, afterwards, I can think about what I'm going to use the marker for. Before the sin, when Adam looked at that physical marker, he would right away look at it and say, ah, this is a tool meant to write with, to understand Torah and God and Hashem and myself with greater clarity. He knew it was green, he knew it was low odor, but that wasn't its essential defining characteristic. It really was in teamwork with the spiritual. Now, I think we can just imagine a tiny bit the difference between how Adam and Eve must have seen each other not dressed before the sin and after the sin. So, before the sin, whenever they looked at any physical thing, they always saw it in total teamwork and harmony with the spiritual. So when they would look at each other's bodies, even their most private parts, what they would really see was the inner essence and soul of the other person. They could look at each other's bodies and they would see the other person's honesty, warmth, laughter, goodness, who they really were inside. All of a sudden, after they do the sin, and that wall goes up between the two, suddenly that physical just takes on like its own chemistry, its own excitement, its own cold. But after they had that, I mean like, maybe I'm just a Russia here, but like, if they... No question is a Russia question. If they saw each other in that new way, where do they get this type of superhuman self-control that they decide to cover themselves up? So what happens is, as soon as they realize that they're looking at each other and they're being pulled by just the external shape or figure or, or form, what they feel is, that's not my essence. Three minutes ago, when I looked at you, I saw you for who you were. All of a sudden, I'm getting so distracted by what I'm seeing outside, and yes, it's a pleasure, and yes, it's a pull, but they just could experience moments earlier what the depth of intimate relationship means when it's internal and it's deep and it's, it's really appreciating the other person's self. So what they do at that moment is they sew themselves belts. They sew themselves clothing. And what they're really doing is what they're saying is, when you look at me, I don't want you to get so distracted by the outer physical chemistry that I'm presenting outside that you're missing my inner essence and my inner soul. I will 
create a belt that will cover over my most pulley attracting physical parts to make sure that when you're looking at me and relating to me, you're really getting to still see my inner essence for who I am as a person. Marcy. How come God only addresses Adam? Ah, great. So I only brought you verses 17 to 19. The next verses right afterwards are he speaks to Eve and discusses with her. And the, the, I'm sorry, actually the ones beforehand were Eve, then Adam, then the snake. So they each get their own private com personal conversation here with their own uh, consequences in terms, in terms of what they've done. Yeah. Um, weren't they also, like, it said that they were made of, like, like they were like a clear, um, like, like nails or something? They were made of that, so they were, they were like translucent. And then that's what really this idea made, means. Their body was translucent meant they were able to see beyond uh, that body and they were able to really see the person's inner essence. When I look at you, the first thing I see about you is your body. I know you have a soul, but I see your body. When they looked at each other before the sin, they saw each other's soul. Like, like the body was so see-through that you just saw the essence. Afterwards, they felt like, that's not who I am. That's not my essence. That's not what I want you to see. And this is really where the basis of modesty began from. When you're looking at me, I don't want you to be so blinded and so distracted by my outer that you're not really getting to connect with my inner side of self. I want to end just by sharing with you, since you do, most of you are comfortable with Hebrew, I just want to show you a few Hebrew language words that so express the whole concept and show you how it's reflected. Um, anybody know how to say skin in Hebrew? Starts with an ayin. Or. Great. Or. Now, this is why in halacha, Jewish law, you're supposed to cover up your erva, right? Erva is nakedness. And it's the same letters, ayin vav resh, ayin resh vav, in just an opposite order. But, if you speak a really good Hebrew, the same letters, ayin vav resh, if you give them different vowels under them, have a totally different Hebrew word. Great. Iver is a blind person. The same word in Hebrew that means skin also means blindness or an Iver. Because if I walk around with my or showing, with my erva showing, with my skin, with my nakedness showing, I'm blinding you. You think you're interested in me and you like me, you're not even getting to see the real, the real me. So what Torah says is make sure you're covering your or, your erva, your nakedness, Make sure that when people are related to you, they're really seeing your inner self. Three more words. How do you say naked or undressed in Hebrew? It's on page one. <coughs> in number one on page one, if you can read the Hebrew words and try to match them up to the read. Arumi. Arum means naked. But that same word, arum, also has a totally different definition in another place in the Torah. It says in the Garden of Eden that the snake was more arum than all the other animals. What does arum literally mean? Clever. Clever. Sly. Tricky. The same word that means naked or undressed, same word means also tricky. Sly. You know why? Because if you walk around naked or undressed, you're tricking people.
They think that they're like liking me or they're interested in me. They're not even getting to know the real me. When somebody, when I walk by and somebody whistles at me, it's, it's a little demeaning because that's not my essence. Like you're not even getting to know me. The Torah says before you start a relationship, make sure you're not presenting yourself a room because you want to make sure that that starting bond is soul. After that's there, then it's beautiful to complete that relationship with that physical connection too. Are there any beings out there who don't wear clothing and feel fine with it? Animals, right? So how come you go to the zoo and everybody's looking at his pottery, even his private parts, and he's not feeling at all uncomfortable? He doesn't have no depth to understand. That he doesn't have anything that he has to cover up because it's, there's no inner essence there. He doesn't have that inner essence of soul. So when you look at him and you see him as a body, you're seeing him accurately for what he is. That's not humiliating. That's not embarrassing. That's totally fine. That's why the Hebrew word for an animal is called, anybody? Animal? Behemoth. Very good. Behemoth. A behemoth is really a contraction of two Hebrew words. Ba, ma. What is in it? It doesn't have a whole inner side of self that you're missing. You're just seeing it for what it is. That's fine. That's accurate. If you look at me and all you can see about me is my behemoth, my animal side of self, that's humiliating. That's demeaning, that's degrading to my real essence of who I am as a person. And therefore, we put on a lavouche. Lavouche means a garment or clothing. And the word lavouche is really a contraction of two Hebrew words lo, bosh. What's bosh in Hebrew? Embarrassment. Embarrassment or shame. It takes away the shame that a garment lebush is lobosh. It removes the shame or humiliation of be just being seen on a physical level without the spiritual side being here too. So if we just go back to the first questions we asked at the very beginning on page one. We asked, I think most of them, well, one through three at least, we can answer based on what we've said tonight. Number one, I like to feel attractive when I go out. What do I have to cover up? Am I number two, am I supposed to be ashamed of my body? What would you say about this now? No. No. Definitely not. We don't say the body is something bad at all. We just say that's not my essence, that's not my beginning point. I have to make sure that my body is presented in a way that's very refined and respectable and dignified because that's an essential part to me. But it can't be so out there that you're missing, really seeing beyond that too. That it's so blind to the other person that they're missing the other part. And number three, if modesty is essentially meant to deal with men's thoughts, what do I have to dress for them? How would you answer that now? It's not for them, it's for us. That's the answer, right? It's not really just about like not attracting men or making them think their own, think their own thoughts. It's really a statement of what part of myself I value. And, you know, unfortunately, I think you find that the people who dress in the most immodest ways, you know, if you go to an area where they're, where they're prostitutes, do the prostitutes usually have high self-esteem or low self-esteem? A person who doesn't really feel strong about who they are inside needs to or wants to make a strong enough statement outside that that becomes their self-definition. What Torah says is never let yourself define yourself just based on size zero, size two, size four, good hair day, bad hair day. I mean, that's part of life, and that's part of who we are, but that's not the essence of 
of, of who I become, and that can't be the, the essence of how I present myself either. We didn't get to number four, but we're really over time. So maybe we'll leave that for another another meeting. If anybody if anybody does have any quicker questions that you want to address or answer, you can always do it. Yeah. Because like they use seeds in their neshama, and that's why it's like a it's a reminder because it's literally why we look at our nails because we're supposed to be looking just like it's supposed to remind us of like on Aden where we would see through and see our neshama just like that is Madala. That's why we look at our nails. Oh, okay. Adam had to go out of Gan Eden after Shabbos, so that was when he was losing that oh. part of Gan Eden. So when we try to hold on to it, to like the, smell. the smell of Gan Eden and the smell of Shabbos to carry the entire week. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful. I feel bad because your question really was number four, and we didn't get to it. Um, I, I don't mind saying the extra few minutes, but I don't know about everybody else. You know what? Anybody who needs to go, please feel free to go. Uh, maybe I, if, if you want, I can just, I can just. The, the real question becomes like, let's say I don't want to present myself as a body, right? How much do you have to cover up? Maybe you should, like the Muslims do, cover head to toe and like only show your eyes through, and then for sure no one will see you as a body, right? So maybe that's the responsibility. So what halacha does is it actually does us a big favor, and it delineates. Till what point is it a woman's responsibility to make sure she's not presenting herself as a body? Beyond which point does it become a man's responsibility to make sure he's not looking at women just as bodies? So what Halakha basically says is, the part of the body that exudes the strongest amount of physical chemistry and pull is the trunk of the body. Right? The trunk begins from my shoulders and goes down till my legs. Right? Now, because of that, they would say, like, my chest should be fully covered because that's part of the, the trunk of my body. If part of my chest is showing, and then a guy looks at me, and then he's still blinded or pulled by that, I can't say, excuse me, you should be looking, you know, not be watching or not be thinking because I have kind of opened up a certain level of presentation that, that's presenting more than, that's pulling the, the eyes a little more strongly. Now, people will talk about like covering collarbones. Like, I don't know if you want to even go into that or, that, or not, but okay. That's, then as I get closer and closer to my trunk, I'm getting closer and closer to danger territory. So I'll give you just an example. I remember the summer before I got married, I spent one summer in Kiev. And Kiev was not far from Chernobyl. So if you remember the history, Chernobyl had a major nuclear disaster that happened with the reactor. So as we were driving through the countryside, I remember there were these signs that would be like, beware, 100 kilometers till Chernobyl, do not enter. This was after the nuclear reactor. Um, caution, 50 kilometers, do not come by. Now, how come they didn't just build a fence right around the nuclear reactor, say, do not enter, 
nuclear energy. It's not enough because nuclear energy is something that has so much intense power that you can create electricity that will light up a whole city and there could be an atom bomb that will blow up and destroy thousands of people. So what the Torah acknowledges is that the, the bond and the connection and the chemistry between men and women is really an unbelievable nuclear power and energy. Is it good or bad? It depends what it's being used for, right? So the Torah says that nuclear energy and that chemistry is what creates new human beings in the world. It brings new souls down into the universe. It's an unbelievable power. But if it ends up being misused in the wrong times and places, the amount of emotional damage and spiritual damage that can happen between two people is also very, very powerful. So therefore, the Torah says, as you're getting closer to trunk of the body, you're getting closer to danger territory. So the Torah says, upper leg is close to trunk. Keep your upper leg covered. Upper arm is close to trunk. Keep your upper arm covered, too. Now, if I'm doing that, and then let's say I have a very pretty face, and then a guy looks at me, and he finds my face very pretty, then do I have to say to myself, oh, no, cover up your face. Be a Muslim, and, you know, just... The Torah says, no, it's not a woman's responsibility. Why not? Because if you look in Hebrew at the word for face, the word is panim, right? Panim is exactly the same Hebrew word as panim. Panim is my inner side of self. My face is not just something pretty on the outside. My face is something through which you read my inner personality and my inner self. When you but it's an ugly face. Ugly or pretty, in either direction, when you watch their face, you're getting a window into what's really happening inside themselves, right? Think about the difference when you listen to like a class or a lecture on tape or when you listen to it live. When it's live, because you're seeing the person's face, you're absorbing their inner, their inner messages beyond just, right? So the Torah says your panim, your, your face, you don't have to cover because that's not just an external beauty. That's a window into who you are as a person. What happens if a guy looks at my face and he finds it attractive? Not my responsibility at that point. The Rambam, Maimonides, lists 12 different Isurim prohibitions of things men are not allowed to look at to make sure that they don't view women in a physical way. One of them would be exactly this case. If a girl is fully dressed modestly and a guy finds her body or her face attractive, it becomes his responsibility not to sit and stare and gaze at her just to enjoy her physical look because that turns his view of women into physical. Just to give you another example, um, if a man passes a lingerie shop, he's not allowed to sit and gaze and look at women's lingerie, even if it's on a, on a dummy, on a mannequin. Why? Because it trains him to look at women's bodies as just being animalistic physical objects. That is not the way a man should be looking at women. So what Halakha does is it's kind of giving us the, the technical delineation till where is it a woman's responsibility, beyond which does it become a man's. So, so does that kind of, when we talk about, let's say, covering knees, I think, is that what you asked about in the beginning? Or? I was like, I'm, I'm just saying, like, elbows, knees, and then other things like colors, stuff like that also. Oh, so the, when you talk about colors, that's, that, you know, we're not going into now laws. It's not laws anymore. Now it's just a matter of every person has to be honest enough with themselves to just say when I'm shopping and I put on this color, if it just looks 
beautiful, pretty, nice, refined, dignified, that's exactly what we're supposed to look. Because when you cover something important and valuable, you cover it with something beautiful. I even think of like, you know, a safer Torah, right? It's something so valuable. You don't just leave it open, you cover it with a velvet cloth. You put it in an iron coat. You put a and, and, and you cover it, you don't just put it in a, in a, in a paper bag. You're putting it in a beautiful cloth, but it's not neon pink with sequins all over it that kind of say, hey, look at the cover. It's a beautiful cloth that says something very valuable inside here. If you want to get to see what it is, like you've got to really respect this thing and get, get to see what's inside. What if you have a lot of very shiny clothing with very bright colors? Thing, like the, what, is it bad, is it neon, and like draws photos? I mean, not neon looks bad, I mean, like, I would be translucent, but like... I guess the question is, is the color that I'm wearing, or is the pattern that I'm wearing so outstanding that when a person looks at me, they are going to be focused on my body so much, so much, that they really, it may be hard for them to be able to see beyond that too. And it's, it's a very personal you know, individual question, and in different communities, as you said, different things might be not attractive at all, and certain things may be. If I'm going through Mea Sharim, and I wear, you know, yellow or red, in that area, it really may pull people's attention toward my body. In that case, there, I might say to myself, you know what, that's not, that's not the color out of respect for them, but even out of respect for how people are going to look at my body. If I'm walking in Brooklyn down King's Highway, the same color may not may not make the same statement. So that becomes more, you know, kind of individual, and every person has to... I think once a person has the concept of what Sneot is about, then they can look in the mirror, or they can look at, at you know, advise with friends, and just say, when I present this way, what do you see? Okay, ladies, thank you so thank much you so for your time, your patience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.